who am I if I'm not Dr. Ashley Wellman, the scholar? And one of my friends who's a dear colleague of mine said, nothing can change it. You are that person because your accomplishments dictate that, not your title. But you can also write the narrative. Like you are allowing a small group of people to write a narrative of your worth, your value, and your future when you have more capability of doing bigger things if you trust yourself to do them. And I was like, what does that mean? That was Dr. Ashley Wellman, a children's book author and a criminologist. Yeah, let's go find the murderer type criminologist. So yeah, this week we're gonna pivot away from the obvious visual side of books and get more into story. Because Ashley's personal story, a life of love, loss, and a newfound focus are manifested in her book, My Friend Fresno, the story of a young girl who befriends a scared little skeleton. Hi, I'm Bobby Brill, and on this episode of Creative Mind, we are going to cover two very important topics creating a compelling narrative, and art as therapy. How is it that you decided to dig up dead bodies and also write wonderful children's books at the same time? I was so passionate about my work as a criminologist, and I still am. I think I'll always be an advocate for survivors and victims of violence. But when I suffered my own trauma in my life, there was a moment where I said, I need a sense of magic. And as an academic, anyone who's an academic knows creativity doesn't have a place in the academy. And so for me, when I thought about how can I really bring color back into my life and into my daughter's life, creative writing ended up being something that saved me. And really? then, yeah. And then eventually became something that allowed us to thrive really as a little duo, my daughter and I. Oh, that's so good. So we're going to back up on this because we're going to, I want you to talk about, you know, your day job, so to speak, as a criminologist. And then we're going to get into some stuff that, you know, it can be rough for some people that you've become an advocate for, which I really want to talk about because that's, you know, that's, that's a hard subject for people to talk about, but it's so necessary. Let's start off with the basic. How did you, and why did you want to become a criminologist? Okay, so let's first talk about what a criminologist is, because so many people think I'm the one out at a CSI scene, including my own parents, <laughs> when, <laughs> when they tell people, oh, my daughter's, you know, a criminologist. Oh, you know, the, the, the true crime stuff, the, the CSI scenes, and I'm going... I'm just going to let them pretend like they know what they're saying. <laughs> I'm actually a scholar who looks at why and how crime happens and what the impact is of that crime. So I'm more looking at the sociological aspects of crime, reasons they occur, the aftermath of what happens to the victims, the offenders, and the system as a whole. So not quite as sexy as it sounds. So I'm not in the high heels chasing down <laughs> the bad guy. Um, I'm actually a professor. And so my job really tailors around being an advocate in the community, a professor in the classroom, and a researcher who publishes you know, research on the topics of, for me, I specialize in homicide, sexual assault, the impact of those violent crimes on the families impacted and the victims impacted. So I've kind of had my own little niche in there of exactly what I want to look at, which is using my platform to give a voice to the victims of violent crime. I know we're laughing a lot. We laughed before we started, but we're, you know, this is very lighthearted stuff. Just murder. Oh, easy. Murder Death. bodies. Yeah. Yeah. What got you into choosing that path to go down? Did you want to be a cop? Did you realize you were smarter than everybody? What, well, what, you what know, was... <laughs> no, no, actually I have imposter syndrome big time. So I definitely okay. don't think I'm smarter than everybody. Well, you're talking to somebody who has a podcast, so that's perfectly acceptable. That's amazing. Perfect. <laughs> um, so I actually, if you had asked me as a little kid, what I wanted to be, I wanted to be a Broadway performer. Hence oh my creativity kind of being my, my gut. And that's kind of what makes my life tick is creative things, singing, acting, painting, writing. But then you get older and, you know, we're told for so long, you can be anything you want. Mm -hmm. And then eventually it's okay. That's not a job. <laughs> so what do you really want to be? And so you, for, especially this podcast, anyone listening, you know, you want to be an artist, you want to be an actress, you want to be these different things. And we're told kind of that's a hobby and it's not yeah. a job. And so for me, when I went to college, I was a nerd. I don't think I was smarter than everybody else, but I was definitely a nerd. I had my uh, AA degree when I graduated high school. And so, oh my gosh. Yeah. So at 18, I'm sitting there like, hey, you need to pick exactly what you want to do because I was a junior in college at the oh age my, of 18. Oh, wow. I'm just a nerd. It's nothing impressive. I'm just, <laughs> I'm just but no, a nerd. But no, but still, that, that's, that's, 
that that is a a type of personality that I'm sure will make your creativity successful because half Thank the part you. of ninety percent of creativity is just getting up off your butt. And yes. Doing it. Yes, and we'll talk about the two when it comes to like why I self-publish. I think it yeah. is that personality oh, yeah. and energy. But okay, so here I am, 18. I'm sitting in an advisor's office and I said, hey, I want to be you know, on Broadway, but that's like not really a job. So I love true crime. What if I'm a, a criminal justice major? And she says, no, you don't want to do that because you're going to have to be a cop. And I thought, well, I don't really want to be a cop, but I love the show. My dad, growing up, my dad would sit with me and watch Unsolved Mysteries and mm -hmm. Cops. And, you know, we used to watch the 911 show that was on, all these different things. Yeah. And so when I'm sitting there and she says, you're going to have to be a cop, I said, well, I don't want to do that. But I did want to be on Broadway. What if I was a broadcaster? No, you don't want to do that because <laughs> <laughs> you're not going to make it. So then I'm going, okay. And so she says, what about public relations? And so here I am, uh, I'm 18 and I'm like, sure, I guess. Oh, that, that, that's the equivalent of saying, uh, you're pretty and you you're can cute. talk. Yeah. So why don't you go, uh, sell something, sweetheart? Thanks. That's exactly. That's pretty much Yikes. what it was. Like you, you take the test and it's like secretary, teacher, or nurse. What do you want to be? Oh, man. No. Uh, so anyway, I took it and I ran with it. And I actually loved public relations. I had my very first job at a Barnes and Noble, which oddly comes a little <laughs> bit full circle too. Yeah, really. Best job I've ever had. I was the community relations manager. I got to do all of the American girl parties, author signings, musical guests, cookbook, you know, people coming in and doing demonstrations. I loved it. Yeah. Wow. That, what a great setup for, you know, flash forward to now. Oh my gosh. Right. Skip forward to that. Well, one of the jobs I had was raising money for local organizations through Barnes and Noble. And I started working with the police athletic league in Jacksonville, Florida. And I loved the environment. I mean, I'm with all these law enforcement officers who are working with kids who are trying to make a difference in the community. And I said, why didn't I study this? This is what I had wanted to do. I went and studied and took the GRE I went back to graduate school and University of Florida paid for me to oh, come wow. get my master's and PhD. So I went from a Seminole, if you guys are familiar with football, <laughs> to a Gator, and I haven't looked back since. So I got my PhD <laughs> in 2011 in criminology, and here I am. Explain that just briefly, because I know what's one of the titles of your book come, or one of the, is it a paper or is it a book? I know with, with, with academia, there's different ones. Okay. So, gotta... so I have not, I've only, I've part of a book, but that's not, that's not really what I do. Okay. All of mine, all of mine are articles. So cold only in the file or, you know, all these different, uh, they all center around either sexual assault survivors or these cold case homicide survivors. And people say, well, what's a survivor of a homicide? Mm -hmm. When you read an obituary, you hear the word they are survived by. Mm -hmm. And that's the term that academics have picked up is this idea of a survivor of a violent crime is either the victim or the family who's been impacted by the crime. And so here I am as a grad student, I had called the local police department and said, Hey, I'm going to come. I want to work with you and, and research with you. And they said, absolutely not <laughs> because here I am an academic, which normally don't get along with practitioners. Get out of here, nerd. Don't yeah, tell us we're get wrong. Get out of here. We're the experts. Yeah. And, and I told him that that's what got me in is I said, listen, I don't know what I'm talking about. So I want to know what I'm talking about. Can I work with the experts? And I think playing to their ego and sure. just loving on them really got me access to things I should not have had access to. Mm -hmm. I was working a lot of cold case homicides. I was interviewing suspects. I went into prison and talked to potential killers. It was oh, amazing. Man. And that was kind of where I was going to go. I wanted to be kind of that homicide uh, offender, you know, inside the mind of the offender. And one day a mom came in and she just said, I want to know what the expletive happened to my daughter. Mm. And one of the detectives grabs me. I'm probably 25, 24, 25. He grabs me and he says, Ashley will tell you about your daughter's case. Oh, and I man. thought, oh, no, oh, no. Thanks, man. <laughs> yeah, geez, Louise. So I sat down with her and all I kept saying was, I'm so sorry that I can't give you answers. Like, I can tell you about her case. I can tell you what they're doing with it, but I can't give you any answers. She doesn't have any leads in her case. And the mom just started crying and she said, Ashley, I did not come for answer. That's not what I was here for. I came so that someone knew my daughter was important. And I knew that her name was still being mentioned in this department. And I just wanted someone to listen. And oh wow, it was really, really profound. My mind shifted from this kind of true crime fanatic 
to this just human that felt so connected to another woman and, and a mother. I was not a mm-hmm. mom at the time, mm-hmm. but just the genuine need for someone to hear her voice. And so I went back to my, um, I think apartment at the time and tried to search everything about homicide survivors or families impacted by murder. And there wasn't anything, particularly if it was an unsolved murder. And so I said, this is it. This is it. Some, there was some divine reason. That's crazy. Yeah. That that mom felt a connection and trust in me in five minutes to tell me her story. All my advisors were like, you can't do this research. It's too sensitive. It's too traumatic. It's going to upset you and the the people. And I said, if I can prove to you that this work is needed and wanted by these survivors, can I do it? And a week later, I think I brought them a list of 25 people who wanted to talk to me. And I said, just, just trust me, let me use my voice to, you know, give access to these, these families. And that's kind of what kickstarted my passion for being a, an advocate in the field of, of fighting for families and survivors to have access to resources and, and other things. Is, is it the, that those resource resources and that, you know, you said that nobody had ever studied this before. Was it just taboo or was nobody thought about it or did nobody really It's hard. Care? No, I think people care, but I think the default really is we want to know. I mean, look at the shows we watch. Mm -hmm. It always is about the crime and the offender and the justice system. And so we very rarely highlight and focus on the the victim themselves. But then to think about the family and the long-term impact of grief, trauma, and loss on a family member, we don't have the resources in place. We simply don't. And, And anyone who knows anything about the criminal justice system we're deficient in a million areas right, of the justice sure. system, particularly victim services. It's always, you know, Wellman versus the state of Texas. It's not, the family's not really represented there. It's the state. And mm-hmm. so there's very few resources, you know, or you get resources during the trial maybe, but if you aren't going to trial, what resources are you getting? And if you're slain family member had a felony record some states give you no victims compensation and no assistance even though the criminal might be dead right the the victim Mm -hmm. has a criminal record well the grandmother who has to raise their four children doesn't have a criminal record and those babies didn't have a criminal record oh my god right and so there's all these kinds of policies and just loopholes and cracks because we don't include the family as part of the victimology when we look at a murder it's the victim's dead So kind of victim resources are not really a priority. And then there's always these societal explanations, whether they're true or not, for Mm -hmm. why you might get murdered, but I won't. Or why your family was impacted and mine wasn't. So there's a lot of judgment and shame and guilt that's so unfair and unnecessary. It's like a a whole other mental murder on somebody. Correct. It's like this disenfranchised grief that follows. Wow. I mean, that's... You know, it's not surprising, but at the same time, it's it's super shameful that we're yeah. not looking at, at people and going, well, I'm, I'm sorry this has happened to you, but, you know, here's a cookie. Go on. Correct. You know, I don't know what to tell you. That's what we do with grief in general, with everything. And that's kind of what changed my life to go towards something more lighthearted was that grief in general, we tell people, we want them to follow the Kubler-Ross model of like, oh, here's these nice steps. You get three days off of work and then you better come back and be the exact same person you were before. And we forget how much grief, loss, and trauma changes who we are, what our family structure is, you know, what our goals are. It just really changes who you are. And so I've been committed to kind of making sure that people who have suffered the unthinkable have a voice when they don't know how to articulate it themselves. I have no idea how to segue into this because this is tough. You know, this, this is very personal for you and I want to get that out there. And so this is tough for for people to listen to, but so necessary this is extremely personal to you because what happened? So everyone had told me you can't do this research, Ashley. It's too heavy, right? And I told them, I promise I'll do self-care and I will I will focus on this thing. This is what's going to get me through this kind of research. I don't know trauma, loss, and grief like these people do because it allowed me kind of to be insulated. I got to use a platform, but then I got to retreat to a family that was healthy and happy and sound in my home. And I didn't have to necessarily bring that kind of trauma in with me to my own home. The year I graduated with my PhD, I met the most amazing man. His name was Buddy Wellman. And um, a year after our first date, on April 30th of 2011, 
we got married. We had gone on our first date April 30th, 2010. Oh, wow. Yeah. So we got married uh, exactly one year after our first date. Um, In 2014, we had my daughter, Reagan. And so while I'm doing my work, it's just kind of like this, okay, I'm dealing with kind of the darkest moments of these families' lives. And then my life's kind of blossoming. My career was thriving. Mm -hmm. My family's growing. I'm happily married. And so my husband and I actually would suffer four miscarriages in 2016 and 17. I'm so sorry. Thank you so much. So it was boom, 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 right? Like miscarriage one was kind of like I was giving it to the statistics because one in four women, right? Miscarriage two was devastating. Miscarriage three kind of broke me and miscarriage four, I was just angry at the world. And so while my career is kind of thriving because I'm able to kind of escape and, and use my voice that I've found, my personal life felt like it was suffering, not because I didn't have a perfect family, but because it wasn't what I had envisioned for my mm. family. So my husband um, was the greatest. He said, we're going to move. We're just going to leave. And I'm like, what the hell are you talking about? I'm tenured. <laughs> you don't leave that. If right. anyone's an academic, right? That's like the end all be all of success. Yeah, I'm done. This is it. Right. Career, this is career it. Begins. I don't have to do anything ever again. No, I'm kidding. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm kidding. I don't even have to grade papers. I got TAs right, for that. Screw I'm it. Done. They can't fire me. <laughs> So, but he said, Ashley, you did, you achieved what quote was supposed to make you happy and you're miserable. So what if we made a big change in our life? So against all senseless, you know, it's like all sense. I said, let's look. And I found an instructor job, which is an entry level position. Mm -hmm. You don't need a PhD for it at an amazing school. And the people there said, Ashley, if you trust us, give up tenure, come to us, you're going to get the next tenure track job at our institution. Just start as an instructor. Like you'll get right back up to it. And I thought, you know what? I'm going to put labels and titles and all this stuff aside (laughs) and focus on health and happiness. And then I'm also going to be successful in my career again. So we move August 12th, 2018. It was the day before I started at this new institution and I went upstairs to take a nap and I heard glass shatter downstairs Mm. and call down to my then four-year-old Reagan. And I said, Reagan, what broke? Like the mom in me was furious right, because right. we're in a new what place. What are you doing? Right. What the hell are you doing? And she didn't answer. And so I call her again. And the third time I call out to Buddy and I said, Buddy, what broke? And no answer. And so my heart dropped. I knew something had happened. I ran downstairs and Buddy was lying in the hallway seizing. And he had grabbed a picture off the wall, I think, trying to brace himself And he had broken it onto the floor. That's what I had heard. So I freak out because he's sweating. He's really cold. He's seizing. And Reagan, while I'm screaming, comes around the corner and sees her dad. So she starts screaming, save my dad. Please save my dad. What's wrong with him? Daddy. And she's trying to reach for him. I get the phone and call 911. Fast forward 90 minutes. And the, you know, I'm watching them do CPR in the emergency room. And it was about... 4.30, and the doctor screamed, Ashley, stop. And I I looked at her like, what are you doing? And she said, stop begging him to live, Ashley. He is brain dead, and we're not going to get him back. You need to stop. And so um, we had had some really tough conversations as a couple, I think because of what I studied. And he had always told me, please don't ever let me not have, you know, my faculties about me. And please, you know, make sure that I'm never brain dead or anything like that. And, um, I want to be cremated and all these things. So instantly I just said, stop, you know, like stop it then. And I'm standing in the middle of an emergency room in a new town by myself. And instantly I'm already in a bad place because of the miscarriages. So my mom identity is weird. Now I'm a widow. My best friend's dead. And the worst part is I have a four-year-old who thinks her dad's coming home. You know, like I had gotten him to the doctor. And so she thinks he's coming home. And so you fast forward a little bit and here I am, I'm a woman trying to help a four-year-old grieve the death of her dad. I'm trying to grieve the death of my best friend. And I'm in a new place chasing a dream that was our dream, you know, to kind of recreate this life and family together. And I was kind of left like, what am I, (laughs) what am I doing here? And we'll talk about kind of where writing pops into that, but fast forward to kind of what my career looks like now That job came up that I had been promised. I was the top teacher and researcher that year. I got bypassed for an interview. I didn't even get interviewed for the job. Three colleagues said I was a different woman than who I, who they thought I was when they recruited me. Mm -hmm. 
Of course I was. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But in hindsight, it was actually, I had discovered this love of creative writing. They thought it had distracted me from my commitment to being a quote, true academic, which it hadn't. Oh my it gosh. Had, yeah. Wow. It had, it had saved me in my bereavement. I had discovered this love of creative writing and this very select few, I have a great group of colleagues, but the ones that were hand selected for this search committee mm-hmm. said, look, she, if she had time to do this writing, she should have been working. She's not committed to academia. This is kind of what their take of me was. And, and you didn't punch any of them. Well, no, I actually <laughs> took it all out on myself and oh, got sicker than I had been oh, with the death oh, of my man. husband. And so, so then, so here I am and I'm like, wait, this had really just been a way for me to heal, right? Mm-hmm. My, my daughter was being written into this book as a children's book character and her best friend, her posable skeleton was being put into this book for something that really was just for me, like, okay, this is just going to give us color. And that's what it did. Yeah. I could, I don't know any artists that are listening, but I could see color. I could yeah, hear color, absolutely. all of this stuff that my world had felt so black and white. And so that's kind of where it had been. And I was like, that's okay. I'm going to walk in the classroom and do my job and, and excel in my career. Cause that's what I know. Well, then my career kind of gets ripped out from underneath of me. And I'm, and I'm feeling this idea of like, who am I if I'm not Dr. Ashley Wellman, the scholar. Mm-hmm. And one of my friends, who's a dear colleague of mine said one, they no nothing can change that You are that person, right? Because your accomplishments dictate that, not your title. Right. But then he said, but you can also write the narrative. Like you are allowing a small group of people to write a narrative of your worth, your value, and your future when you have more capability of doing bigger things if you trust yourself to do them. And I was like, what does that mean? <laughs> so well, okay, I don't what know kind what that of, means. Yeah, yeah. It's like what kind of therapy babble mumbo jumbo? Yeah. Like, oh, God. Great. I've had a lot of that's therapy a, that's mumbo That's a lovely jumbo. fortune cookie you've given but me. But what should I do with that? But, right. So I'm like, know, damn it. I still got to go home. Yeah. And that's a lot of freaking work to dig deep and say like, what do I want to do? And so I said, well, holy shit. What if this book that I was using as a way to, to heal and survive the death of Buddy really became magic and was not just a way to heal and survive. It was a way to thrive. And so I marched my rear end down to the courthouse. I filed a small business loan. I said, I'm going to have ownership. And this is where we'll get to like why self-publishing, but I wanted ownership of this project. And here now I have a five-year-old standing next to me who's seen me struggle at work, who's watching me kind of navigate who am I while I'm trying to help her be healthy. And I wanted her to see that. So she saw some of the ugly too. So she knew grief was not beautiful. And I said, you know what, Reagan, you want to help me do marketing for this book? Do you want to help me, you know, like do this? And she just became just, you saw her light up. And I thought, oh my God, this is going to be a way for us to provide for ourselves and kind of have a second adventure, a new start, a new story. Because one of the things I had always told my families that I worked with was you cannot force yourself back into a life that doesn't exist. And if you think about what I just told you about, my life before Buddy's death was the successful academic. And I, I wanted so badly to be that successful academic again, because I knew it, it was safe. And that's kind of like what I thought I was. And when he died, I had to really take my own advice, grieve with Reagan, get professional help, seek something new, stop pushing yourself back into a life that doesn't exist anymore. And so here I am, I own my own small business. I'm running my website. I have my first book of many that are hopefully coming down the pipes. And I'm still always going to be an educator, an advocate, a criminologist. Those things will always be part of who I am, but it doesn't have to be all that I am. You know, I, I was going to ask if you needed a break and take time because, you know, my, my heart and brain are still reeling from this because I got a kid and I can't imagine any of this stuff even happening to anybody. It was hell on earth. It was really bad. It's going to be tough, you know, as we talk about this, people are going to go, hey, wow, you're just skipping over really horrible stuff. I'm like, well, reach out to <laughs> Dr. Ashley and have that stuff. Uh, people better than me are going to talk about that. But that is the only thing I can say is that happens to a grief is a wonderful motivator that you have found yes. a grief, a motivator we'd ever want, but it's there. Who, who told you that creative writing was the thing? I mean, why? I mean, how were you lucky enough to pick creative writing and not punching walls yes. and not running through cars and not doing all the cliches we see in movies? I mean, right. I've had, I've been pissed off at my wife and, you know, throw stuffed animals across the room and slam doors and stuff. It was crazy because I remember I laid in bed the first couple of days after Buddy's death and I thought, okay, 
I want so badly to pull the head, like the sheets over my head and just exist and just be here. And yet I didn't have that option because of Reagan. And so it's like as bad as it was that I had to pick up and not just grieve Buddy's death, but then process Reagan's grief with her and my grief. Mm. Reagan saved me. It was a blessing that I had a responsibility of you've got to get up and like get your shit together and provide for this little yeah, yeah no, that, no, that's you know? an amazing way to look at it. Yeah. Yeah. And and so I didn't give myself an option to do anything other than that. And people who know me, I mean that's just my personality. It's like, holy crap, I'm not doesn't mean it's pretty. So like even with the job stuff right. and mess like that, I suffer from it. But all you're going to see is me going like, all right, so next, you know, it's like I'm a soldier and I'm just going to keep grabbing what I need to do to keep stepping forward for her, for me. Now I'm learning it's for me too. Yeah. I think there was a lot of hurt and and pain and I chose to channel that into creativity. I painted a lot when he Mm. passed away. I don't think I'm that great of a painter, but it's something about the emotion you can put sure, onto yeah. a canvas. And there's one picture that I'm like, I painted that. It's really good. It's a girl and she's, she's sad. It's her face. And I'm like, there's so much true emotion that I painted into that girl. And so I had a friend who would come check on me and I was in this condo where he died and it was very, very dark. Oh my and gosh. And, and this friend is literally like the most influential human in my life right now. And he stopped by one day just to check on me. He was, he was coming home from some event and he stopped by and he's like, it's so dark in here. What do you do? And I was like, I don't know. Like, I don't really want to watch all the shows that we were in the middle of as a couple, you oh, know, like wow. survivor yeah. and right. big brother. Yeah. And that's what we had done after, you know, Reagan went to sleep. And so sure. I was like, yeah. sitting there and yeah. he said, Ashley, he had seen a picture of Reagan dancing with her skeleton, who's her best friend. And he has been since she was two years old. And he said, that is the weirdest, prettiest picture I've ever seen in my life. (laughs) And he said, what if you took a break from writing research right now? Because I was still trying during my bereavement leave to be a very successful scholar. And he said, Mm. you don't have to do all that right now. Bereavement leave is for a break, which we, you know, six of my colleagues thought it was. Three did not. (laughs) Brilliant. Right. So surprise, bereavement leave was, was a vacation in their mind. But for me, he said, Ash, what if you took this moment really to just dig deep and do something lighthearted? You study such heavy stuff. And right now you're the one in trauma. You're the one who's grieving. Stop the other stuff right now. Focus on something creative writing. And so I said, okay. So two days later, I run up to work and he's in his office. And I said, can I read you the book I wrote? And he said, wait, what? And I said, yeah, I wrote it. The one you told uh, me to so write. You're, you're one of those people. Yeah. I, I built the car. It. I built it. I fixed Did you it. See? I tore Did it down. You? I redid it. I painted right. it. Is it, is it okay? That's you it. good? I built my own home last night. Did you see this? <laughs> so um, <laughs> I learned to quilt last night and made 13 blankets. That's kind of my personality. And so he's like, holy crap you what? And I said, can I read it to you? And he was just laughing. And he's like, this is good. This is very good. It's like 88% there, you know? And then in the same breath, he's like, I've always had this fantasy to write a teen ghost story. Just think about it. Just think about it. Like, you know, and so probably two days after that, I come with chapter one and two of this ghost book. And he's like, who the hell are you? This is amazing. I was like, I don't know. I don't know (laughs) what's happening. So it's just, it became one of these things that it took me to a different world. I just got to transport myself into these like precious, sensible stories for a child or this kind of historical, scary story for teenagers. And I got lost in it. And so now I'm like, well, shoot, I'm glad I was good at something because (laughs) it's giving me direction now. Before we get too far into it, let me, let's, let's dive into the book. It's The Girl Who Dances with Skeletons, My Friend Fresno, which is a very adorable title. I'm going to ask you why Fresno, because that's 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 the oddest, oddest name for, uh, for having lived in Fresno. It's the oddest title, but adorable. And you go through the book and you can, it very quickly talks about some grief, some loss, things that every kid takes of, think uh, has to deal with. I mean, I've got a three-year-old, and I, I read it to him, and he he scares easy, but he loves skeletons for some reason. Which I'm just like, I'm like, what? He goes, what it's a skeleton, it? and he's like, mm-hmm. skeletons are happy. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, they are. skeletons are happy. I'm like, oh, I guess it's all teeth. Mm-hmm. What was the the storyline for this in your mind originally? What what made you want to think about this story of your daughter and her little skeleton friend. 
So when she was two, again, for anyone listening, I'm a criminologist. So as weird as this seems, it was very normal in our household. So <laughs> I had gotten fr- uh, this skeleton. I did not name him Fresno. I had gotten this skeleton to put in the corner of my office. He's posable. I thought how funny he could sit on top of my desk and kind of greet students when they come in. And my two-year-old at the time said, you can't take him. That's my best friend, Fresno. And I started laughing. I look at my husband and Buddy's like, you're weird. She's bound to be weird. Let her be weird. And I thought, okay. So Fresno became this instant fixture in our house. And no lie, he had to use the restroom. So we'd have to set him up on the toilet. He'd take a bath at night. He would lie down in her bed. He would take naps. He'd be on the movies and, you know, going to the movies with us. He's been to England. He's been to Canada. That boy has traveled everywhere that baby has traveled to. And so... She she named him Fresno. I have no clue where that came from. We are Florida, uh, <laughs> Texas. Like, we're not from Fresno, California. Um, but she just picked that name. So it stuck, as, as did Fresno. Once you name it, it's like a dog. The yeah. thing became part of our family. Yeah. So the story itself... I knew that in children's books, there's these, these arcs that you're supposed to follow, right? It needs to be about friendship or um, the environment or you know, these different kinds of things that you can focus on. Well, here we are. My daughter was very much at a time, and, and still is, was in a place where she's forever now different mm-hmm. because she sure. lost her dad. So it was the things of like little things I had never thought of before going to a Disney movie and every single parent is dead in a Disney movie. Yeah, right. Right. It takes on a very profound effect. When I look over my four-year-old's crying and I say, what's wrong? She's like, I know what that feels like. I feel sad for Anna and Elsa, you know? And it's like, oh my God. Oh my God. That that's just melting. Oh, it's, it's horrible. Oh my gosh. And so I'm like, oh my God. Okay. So she knows she's a little different. She's really sensitive to other people. um, Very compassionate to other kids. And certain things like at school, when they do their family trees or when it's donuts with dad, Reagan's different. Right. Yeah. And so like, I always prompt her teachers. I'm like, she's always going to have her dad's death as part of her story. I just want you to know that she's going to talk about him on her family tree. Like, I'm not going to not put him on there, you know, because she wants to. And I said, but I want to brace you. Like her daddy passed away. And you know, when y'all read books about dad or when you have donuts with dad, Reagan's going to be a little bit more sensitive to those things. Absolutely. So I thought, okay, what if this book was about just being different? And how being different, when I, when I watched Reagan at four, seriously, at four, there were moments when I would feel like either Buddy or some kind of like divine being was talking through her. Like I'd mm-hmm. be hysterical or I'd be crying and she'd be like, mom, dad is right here with you, right? Or like, we're so lucky we had him or all these just very bold oh, things. Stop, you're going to make right? me cry now. I know, but these are very, very bold seriously, things. Seriously, seriously. I'm not trying to be funny, but when I say yeah. that, but like when I looked at the book and anybody who's been a parent, there is that moment mm-hmm. and you've heard, you know, you, n- nobody who has kids, and if you don't have kids, you hate hearing kids yes. change you. I'm 43. Oh, they do. I'm 43. And you know, my little boy can say something to me or read a oh, book like, or watch a thing. I'm like, I'm going to cry now in the other room to stop looking at me. And it's so wise. They're so smart. And so I thought, okay, I want a story about her compassion her ability to recognize things in other people that are special and different. Because one of the first things we did was go to this bereavement group. And one of the little girls at the bereavement group had lost her sister to cancer. And both little girls had a disability where they didn't have their limbs. And so um, Reagan would always, every time we walked in, she'd be like, isn't she the most beautiful girl? She's so beautiful. And she would like celebrate this little girl. And she and Claire were so close and she would just be like, Claire's the prettiest girl I've ever seen. And like went up to a veteran in the airport and was like, you have the most gorgeous leg I've ever seen. And it was a titanium leg. <laughs> and so like just these things where Reagan celebrated how beautiful things that are often scary are like, let's not talk about that. Right. You know, Reagan loved it and celebrated it. And I thought grief is like that. Disabilities are like that. Mm, Being bullied sure. is like that, right? There's so many things, our sexuality, all these different things that, for me growing up, we're taboo. Do not talk about them. Do not look at that person. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I want Reagan to dance with the things that we think are scary because they're not. They're often just misunderstood. And so the book kind of takes on that approach. It shows you how Fresno was a little you know, tentative. He was a little scared to be her friend because other people had mistreated him. How she shows him, look, together we can be great friends. There's so many cool things we can do together because we're different. 
And then at the end of the book, not only does Fresno love himself, but Reagan learns a lot of profound messages by being the compassionate one. And, and like, right. So, so when we're faced with things like someone who's a different sexuality, a different religion, a different race, instead of saying like, okay, you stay there, I'll stay here. The book's really about this idea of if we collaborate and we become friends and we share what makes us different, it doesn't necessarily change me in the way you think it would. It just makes me more solid as a human being and more compassionate and more able to celebrate the things around me. And that's kind of what the book was about. It, it was based on really Reagan. And then every time I share it with a different group, so I've shared it with people with intellectual disabilities, um, with families who have children with physical disabilities. And they're saying like, thank you for this book for my child. And I'm thinking, that's not what it was. That was never, I never knew that that's what it was for. And now I'm going, oh my God, the educator in me is like, yes, let me tell you how it links to your kid. Do you know what I mean? Okay, let me go do to... my lit review. I'll be back in, in two I'll days. Be right, minute, I'll be minute, right back. Yeah, and so it's been so crazy how that advocate in me, the mm. scholar in me, has also kind of merged into this, this author who I've become. And I'm able to share these kind of really profound messages with kids through a simple book of friendship and love and acceptance. And it's had a bigger impact on me, on my daughter, and on people who are reading the book than I really had ever envisioned. That sounds like the world's greatest heart band-aid ever. I mean, that's just, it's hard for me to, you know, somebody who loves to babble and be cynical about stuff, but it's like, how else do you deal with something that is so yeah. tragic and just go, okay, time for a peanut butter sandwich, kiddo. Let's yeah. go. And I'm going to yeah. do my best to, uh, you know, not cry in your peanut butter sandwich. Well, I had promised Buddy in the hospital. I kissed him goodbye. And the last thing I said to him is I was like, I don't know how, but I'm going to make your daughter a beautiful life. Like she's going to have a magical life that you would have <laughs> given her. And then I was like, oh, crap. That's a big promise. And so now, yeah. <laughs> now <laughs> I think someone probably three months ago said, you realize when you made that promise, though, you get to have the magical life too. And you get to enjoy those things too. And I thought, whoa, that's a really beautiful way to look at that. And, and Buddy would have been the first one to be like, Nope, no, ma'am. Do not. Don't waste your time <laughs> warning me. He's having bourbon and donuts up in heaven. He's okay. And he's cheering us along. And so it's, it's really been this kind of because of his love and because of how much I know he believed in me, because he gave me this beautiful baby, I feel just all of this positive energy. I still have really horrific days. Do not get, uh, <laughs> do not I, get yeah, me wrong. I, I, can, I don't even want to imagine. Yes. But there's so much beauty if you allow yourself to look at the gift you had and what that then allows you to believe in yourself moving forward. It's been, it's been pretty, pretty powerful. And my illustrator, we, we cannot not talk about my illustrator. Oh, we're gonna, yeah, we're going to get deep into the book. We're okay, gonna get good. Deep okay, into good. The book. Don't worry. Those are all the right reasons to write a children's book. Yes. And I, I, I do have to say it is a story that you look at and go, oh, wow. That's dealing with stuff that is 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 rough, and you're getting past it, and it's, you know, it it it's a beautiful story. Thank you. Now comes the hard part where we're going to talk about the business of stuff. Yes. And we're going to talk the business of writing and the business of all this kind of. Okay, now you're going to make a book, and <laughs> books are, I'm going to make a million dollars, or I'm going to make five dollars, and to switch on this, you had mentioned it earlier before. Mm -hmm. But when you did this book, you decided to self-publish. Mm -hmm. And there are two very strong camps in self-publishing and traditional publishing. And traditional publishers hate self-publishers. And self-publishers are like, hey, what are you doing? We write books too. What was the reason that you wanted to self-publish this? All right. So, and okay, let me do a disclaimer. Remember, I used to be a Barnes & Noble employee. And I was in charge of bringing everybody in who wrote books. Everyone wants to write a book and anybody can write a book. And so I think the negative connotation of a self-published book is like you couldn't make it in the traditional market. And so you slapped this junk together mm -hmm. and you presented it to us and we're supposed to buy it as a book, right? Like right. this you made Absolutely. at the kitchen table. Yeah. When you look at my friend Fresno, this is where I do feel confident. It's not one of those books. Correct. But what I knew when I was, I was looking at this, you know, my illustrator is like, Ashley, he's very introverted. He's a very nervous person. I'm very anxious, <laughs> but it's a different kind of, of energy. He's like, what are you doing? This should go main. This needs to go like the normal route, you know, blah, blah, blah. And I said, it doesn't, it doesn't L hear me out. You're not working with a normal person. <laughs> <laughs> 
we do need to mention it because we, if yeah. we don't, we're going to skip over it. Your illustrator is, uh, tell me about your illustrator. Oh my God. Okay. I'll tell you about him, but he really, he really got on board with this idea of self-publishing. So my illustrator is the incredible Zachary Thomas Kincaid. So Zach Kincaid, he is the a nephew of Thomas Kincaid, the painter of light, who's a mm-hmm. phenomenal artist in his own right. But Zach not only paints in a style that can be kind of complimentary to Tom's style, but Zach has this amazing ability to write these and, and paint these narratives of storytelling. And you can just feel the emotions and memories, the history that he puts into his pieces. He's a beautiful artist. And when I approached him, his, his dad actually was the one that connected us. His dad is my dear friend who encouraged me to just get over myself and start, <laughs> start doing some of these things. He said, my son should illustrate your book. And I'm going, is it good enough for Zach to illustrate my book? And Pat was like, hell yeah, I wouldn't connect you if it wasn't. Yeah. He's like, this is good. So he hooks me up with Zach. Zach calls me and he's like, listen, I'm an artist. I'm not an illustrator. And I, you know, I paint. That's what I do. Right. And and, and, said, and, and, and for you and for yes. the people listening and, and everybody has learned, as we've talked about, there's illustrators and then there's fine artists. That's right. There's very different. But are they? Because exactly. I told him. <laughs> As somebody right? with an art degree, it's like, do you have a paycheck? Right, right. Am I getting paid at the end? What do you want Correct. me to do? Are you getting royalty checks? Cool. Yeah. <laughs> so, but but I didn't have to treat him like that at all. We we both sat down and, and he has been the greatest collaborator ever. So anyone who's working with an illustrator, to have the relationship he and I had was amazing. I would say, hey, Zach, I know you're not an illustrator by trade. However, your art is what I want. I want this to be an experience. I don't want just a, you know, a graphic illustrator. That's not what I wanted. I want a piece of art. And to me, when you open that book, part of the joy of my friend Fresno is the narratives within the story, the jaw dropping stuff, the little pieces of, you know, Fresno's body hanging behind the curtains at uh, the theater performance. And so I knew he could bring the story to life through the narratives that he painted on canvas and he did. And so one of the other cool things about Zach is he would say, Hey Ash, I don't like these words. And I'd be like, huh? (laughs) Hey, 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 painter monkey. Don't talk to the word lady. (laughs) No, but honestly, the, the most beautiful part of our collaboration was I'd say, okay, okay, okay. Why not? And he'd say, well, you know, they're fine, but I don't feel anything. I don't have a connection to Fresno in these words. So rewrite them and give them back to me. Like idea's good. I need to feel something. And I'd give it back to me, be like, bingo, that's it. And then he'd give me a picture and I'd be like, well, I don't feel anything here, Zach. Change Fresno here, you know? And he'd give it back to me, bingo. So it was these constant reflexive and, and a traditionally published person may not ever <laughs> talk to their illustrator, right? You might, you may never ever have a connection to your illustrator. Right. Absolutely. I wanted, yeah. yeah very I wanted, rarely do you ever meet. No, my God. Or do you have a say? Like, it's like tough. Yeah. We bought this. So good luck. Yeah. When I made the decision with Zach, I said, listen, trust me. I know that sounds crazy. You don't know me from anybody, but I'm going to make this book work and not, I don't need to be a million dollar seller. You don't need to, he's a, he's very successful as an artist. I said, but I'm going to take Fresno and I'm going to turn him into something bigger than just a book on a Barnes and Noble shelf. Mm-hmm. I want to be able to use him in classrooms. I want to be able to take him into organizations that work with intellectual disabilities and these types of things. And I want to be at trade fairs and I want to do these kinds of, of maybe own my own store because I needed ownership and something to kind of say, this is mine. Mm-hmm. And this is a world that I get to create for my family and share with other people. Mm-hmm. And so he trusted that. And it's been, um, he was laughing because he's like, you know, I read most self-published books don't sell more than like 250 copies. And pre-sales, I was like, so Zach, we're up to 400 books. Like, you know, you want, and he's like, what the heck? So I said, yeah, you're just working. Like, I don't take no for an answer. I'm pretty right. outgoing. I'm passionate about helping other people. And when I take on a project, it's like I said, I walked back in two days later. I was like, oh, by the way, here's my script. You know, here's what I'm doing. (laughs) I just like to have projects and make them work. And there's so much heart behind it that I said, I don't want to give it to somebody else who gets to tell me what they're fixing, who Mm -hmm. who gets to take over the illustrations, who gets to... Honestly, nowadays marketing very much falls on the author, whether you're self-published or traditional or not. And so I was like, if I'm going to do the work, I'm going to get the money too, because as a wholesaler and distributor, the retailer, then I make the money and Mm -hmm. Zach gets a better benefit. You know, like, so I just cut the middle people out and (laughs) I'm not going to, I probably am not going to sell millions of copies with that model. But what I do sell, I make, I don't know what, 10 times, 12 times what I'd be making traditionally published. So it's like, it's a trade-off of what are you willing to put into it 
I was on a panel with another guy who was traditionally published and he was like, you're doing the job of like 15 people. Absolutely. And I said, oh, I know. And he was like, cause I have, he's like, I have a manager, a marketer, a cover design artist. I have an mm. illustrator. I have a PR team. I have, and I'm going, no, that's me. <laughs> like that's, <laughs> that's me. But then again, I have my PR background. Yeah. I have my, you know, like my ability to, to make connections from academia and all these other things. And so it was just a very solid choice, which sounds crazy, but I said, this is going to be mine and I'm going to share it with people in my, my way. You spend a lot of time getting this book to be a real book, which a lot of self-publishers oh don't do. Yeah. So a lot of self-publishing is glue a cover on it, walk away no. and sell my book. Yeah, no, 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 no. So I went, we spent a lot of time in children's bookstores saying like, what quality paper do we want? What size book do we want? Because as a mom, you know, Zach's like, I don't know, what's a good book? And I said, let me read some of my Reagan's, you know? And yeah. I would open them up and I would say, oh wait, this is hard to hold. This is, I don't mm. like this. I knew I wanted to print the cover on the actual cover and have the dust jacket so that when Reagan ripped the dust jacket, I'd have the cover <laughs> still in the book, you know? Yeah. And so we did a lot of that. We did a lot of back and forth with, with the printing company. That was really cool. It wasn't a publisher. It's a printing company. And so mm. I would say, hey, I want three millimeter thick board. And I'd get a book back that was thinner. And I said, this is not what I wanted. I wanted a thick cover. I want it to be the highest quality cover you can give me. Okay. So we had to do another wrap of it. You know, the pages, Zach had to learn. Zach's like, I don't know what they're asking for. You know, it's a Chinese company. <laughs> I don't know what they're talking about. So we're both in like InDesign and oh wow, Illustrator and Procreate. And we're trying to resize pages, give it bleeds, making sure the color settings, the correct. Oh man, thing. you guys are really starting from nowhere. Oh Nothing. my gosh. We, I mean, one of our pages was in the wrong color format at the beginning. And so we're like, oh crap. Zach might have lost the cover image at one point. <laughs> <laughs> I thought it, was it happens gone. to all of us. No worries. Yeah. yeah. Right before the final print happened, they said, oh, by the way, your dust jacket isn't the right size. I need you to resize it. And Zach's like, that's not how that works. Like, I, I mean, we had measured with a ruler. I had taken <laughs> old dust jackets and laid them out and measured the spine, measured the, the flaps of the book and things like that. And so there's so many details. That's what that one author was saying. Like I have a team of 15 people who would be doing this for me. Not me. I'm on the floor with a ruler. <laughs> I'm taking pictures. I'm, um, you know, rubbing my book pages against Reagan's book pages. <laughs> I don't like the feel of these. This is too slick. So there's so many decisions that a publisher would have taken care of and said, this is how we do our books. And yet Zach and I had to say, how do we want our book? And it was all those little intricate details. How far do the words have to be over on the page? What font do they need to be in? How big can the font be? Um, mm. Is it okay to do dot, dot, dot and not a comma? Like mm. what, what vibe do we want? And so I did a lot of polls with my friends. <laughs> He's always like, ask your mom friends. Cause yeah, Zach's yeah absolutely. 28 year old kid. Yeah. And he's like, ask your mom friends. So I'd send eight fonts and I'm like, which one would you want to read? And what could your kids read? What's easier yeah. for your kids to read? And those types of things. So tons of, tons of decisions, decisions I didn't know needed to be made. And <laughs> then finding peace to say, I'm proud of it. I'm ready to share it because that's maybe the scariest part is you've worked so hard. It took us two years and I'm going to share this with people and trust that it's good enough that I'm proud of what I'm putting out there. Cynical as Zach is, cause I'm the, I'm usually the optimist in the, in the mm -hmm. relationship. And then he, he'll say like, oh, like, what are we doing? You know, I'm like, we're publishing another book. Go ahead. Here's the next plan we're doing, mm. you know? And it's kind of just like, just keep propelling him along <laughs> because he's so dang good. And my promise to him was, I will never ask you to work on anything with me that you're not incredibly proud of. And so if it's not something you're proud of, we're not doing it. So it was one of those things where it was just this trust between the two of us of you're a professional artist. I'm going to trust that. You trust me that I'm a PR good enough author to, to do it with. And we're going to, we're going to be this team that goes out and does it. And the, the neat thing is, is that Zach is not, he's still a painter. He's still mm. an amazing artist doing his work. I'm still a professor doing my work and we're doing this, this kind of passion project that's making us money. <laughs> so how did that work then? So you, you get your book, you get, you, you get the mm. galleys, you get the, 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 the samples, you get everything done, you get all the work done. And then you've got this book and you had to go and, you know, knock on doors. How did that, 
horrible process go? Okay, so I did I did something even crazier than just self-publish. I am not a print-on-demand book. So anyone who's listening, if you are a self-publisher, you have two options, really. You yeah. can kind of print-on-demand, so when someone orders your book, it gets printed. You know, Or throw and, a and lot you... of money somewhere and get a pallet of books that are filling your room for the rest of your life. Oh, you're a nut bar. What I are did you doing? it. I did it. So um, I have 10,000 books in my garage, <laughs> okay. along with 2,500 plush dolls and kids puzzles and adult puzzles. So I built a brand, a store is what I wanted. I wanted a boutique. Okay. And I said, I'm going to have these items because going to a trade show and having a book, it's like, who's coming to my table, right? But when sure. I have a store, mm -hmm. you walk into my store. So my bone boutique <laughs> allows people <laughs> to step in and say, okay, I want the book and I want the puzzle collection. Oh, I want the book and the plush doll, which sure. has been the best combination mm -hmm. or whatever. There's a legitimacy to the brand. There's a legitimacy to the product because it isn't just a book that I had printed because I knew I had an event coming up. Like mm -hmm. this is my business. This is what I'm doing. I have custom shoes. I've got all kinds of fun things <laughs> that are Fresno. And so there's just a commitment to saying this is my, it's like anyone else, anyone who opens a clothing boutique, anybody who had, you know, um, I don't know, an art boutique, anything. Sure. I said, yeah. I'm going to have products that people can shop. And so that's, I'm on Zach right now about like, this cannot be my only book. Like yeah. we have an affinity now of a thousand people who want Fresno. Well, that thousand, 700 of them want book too. So like, let's keep going, Absolutely. you know, and get this, this collection going. So yeah, I'm, I'm a nut who went all in <laughs> and said, I'm going to commit. Um, my license plate says, I love Fresno. So there's all kinds of things to say, like, I believe in it. You guys should too. <laughs> well, but I mean, that, that is a great way of looking at it because there is something about, you know, I'm going to say you're not an artist, but I'm going to re rephrase that in that you didn't start off as an artist. Right. And now you're becoming an artist because you've got a book and that's art. I designed the plush. Then I designed the puzzles. Zach oh, gave me the liberty to kind of do what I wanted. So I hand put together every single kid's puzzle with the back that has all your options on it. Oh, I put wow. together the adult puzzle. I created the box. I did all these other things and sent it off to a foreign country and <laughs> got it back. And so it was, it was crazy because like, I didn't know I had that talent and I kept going, Hey Zach, can you, you know? And I was like, I can do that. He gave mm. me liberty to use his images. So I mm. show it to him and he's like, that looks really good. And I said, cool, I'm sending it off to get printed. And it was really neat because it's almost like I did become a sort of artist beyond the author part mm -hmm. where I oh, was absolutely. able to craft, yeah, craft the products that were coming out of my shop. That's something fascinating because so much of the the hardest part of being an artist for, you know, for those of us who are listening to you going, oh my gosh, this is so inspiring is, you know, I, I did my work. I made the picture. Now, now what do I do? Or can, you know, don't talk to me about it again. I think that's the hardest part for artists is that the natural attitude or, or disposition often is that of an introvert, Absolutely. one who doesn't know their magic, who doesn't believe in themselves the way everyone around them. They're just like, holy cow, someone wants my stuff, I guess. You know, it's this very kind of a lack of knowledge of how powerful and beautiful your stuff is. And so there's an inability to sell yourself. And I may be on the opposite end where my talent may not even be as great <laughs> as, as like Zach's, but I'm going to sell it and you're going to believe it. I'm like that Eskimo selling you ice. <laughs> you're out there and like, I guess I need it when it's all around you. So I think that's the gift I have, which is where some people, it's not smart to go the direction that I, that I went, but I'm one of those people that's like, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to continue to celebrate this so much that other people can't really look away. And if that's kind of the mentality you have, you know, I have days where I go, I'm so tired, especially during COVID and all this other mess where it's like, mm. I told a friend the other day, I feel like I'm walking through mud where it's just like, not today. Like, I just don't want to do this today. But then it's like, just do one thing, Ash. So like this morning, I reached out to another little artist and I said, you know, like, hey, I'd love to know what your thoughts are on this X, Y, and Z idea I have, you know? And I thought that's not much, but that's progress because I had an idea and I made a connection. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Maybe today that's good enough. And other days I'm hustling from 8 a.m. to 10 p.m. So <laughs> it just kind of depends on the day. And But I do think that's where a lot of artists fall short. It's this idea of like, I did it and I'm done. And unfortunately, a lot of people do it and are done. And you have to fight to kind of set yourself apart and make enough noise to where people look at you. 
Well, we're not done because I still want to talk to you about stuff, but I want to very, very quickly go plug, plug, plug. Give me all your plugs quickly. So if somebody cuts my text, plug it, plug away. Give me all your websites. Give me all the things. Okay. So you guys have to visit the Bone Boutique online where you can get all of the My Friend Fresno goodies. It's at www.myfriendfresno.com. You can shop, play. There's the book, plush puzzles are there. So that's myfriendfresno.com. We're also on all social media, including TikTok, even though I'm a little too old for that. It's, <laughs> it's at myfriendfresno. That's Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, TikTok. And then if you're interested in me, who still is that bizarre, <laughs> wacky criminologist, you can find me at www.ashleywellman.com or at Dr. Ashley Wellman on Twitter and Instagram. All right, perfect. So now comes the next stuff. Again, there's too much too much awesome stuff to talk to you about. So book one, My Friend Fresno. Book two, TBD? No, well, hopefully it's going to be um, Fresno's First Christmas. We're okay. also uh, working with Fresno Finds His Heart, which is kind of a play on uh, knowing who you are without really knowing who you are. Mm-hmm. I also have a book coming out, hopefully with Zach as well. It's about a little girl, Trixie, who's quite different and tries to fit in and blend in and realizes sometimes it's better just being the oddball and standing out. So my books will always be centering on something about really loving who you are and and accepting the people around you. That's kind of the journey we're going right now. So they're coming. Keep your eye out on that bone boutique. <laughs> oh, good. Fabulous. So now now comes the the switch where I want to talk to you. We're going to go back to the criminology side because I'm sure you've got at least 17 screenplays. Oh, for sure. About, about that stuff. As the expert for people who are listening, you know, for the school, it's not just an art school. It's not just, you know, the traditional fine art throwing paint on canvas. You got filmmakers, writers, authors, scene designers, photographers. As a criminologist, who gets it right? What TV show actually makes this, makes what you do legitimate? I'll tell you what. Okay, so I'm like any doctor who watches, you know, Grey's Anatomy or something, and they want to vomit because it's not (laughs) accurate whatsoever. My students will raise their hand. They're like, Dr. Wellman on CSI. And I'm like, be quiet. (laughs) Get out. Get out of the class. Do not. (laughs) Do not utter whatever's coming out of your mouth next. But there are, there are shows that get it right. I mean, my God, as any 30 to 40-year-old woman in America knows, ID Discovery, any of the datelines and things like mm-hmm. that, they're phenomenal. But those are real documentaries. Mindhunter, I love. Okay. I loved Mindhunter, uh, especially as a criminologist, someone who wants to know about theoretical reasons people do things. They do a lot of the historical accuracy in that show. It's a beautiful show. A lot of talking. A lot of thinking. Oh, it is. But, you know, I'm a nerd, so I like that kind of stuff. <laughs> Believe it or not, I will give some kind of credit to Criminal Minds. Yeah, you said that earlier, and I, I wanted, I know, I wanted to vomit, <laughs> but that's okay. People like CBS. It's okay. Yes. So with Criminal Minds, I'll tell you the thing they get right, is they really do their homework as the cases they pick. So when people are like, oh my God, this this episode was so creepy. I'm like, oh yeah, well, that was based on you know the smiley face killer. Or, oh, did you know that's actually based on this Catholic school that that happened at? You know, And they're going, What? So the thing that's neat about that show is you can often find a real case or a couple cases that have been integrated into the storyline, which I go, dang, okay. Like they'll get some obscure crimes that they'll put into it. Now, what they don't get right is that semen does not occur at a robbery scene. Um, You can't You you hope at least. (laughs) I mean, my God, it might've been something exciting they were taking. I don't know. But you know, that doesn't happen. So often it's not people who are kidnapped, people who are sexually assaulted, those types of things. It's usually someone, you know, that doesn't make for exciting TV. Mm-hmm. So often the victimology offender dynamic is exaggerated to often be the stranger and the crazy person in the woods, you know, that's something creepy. You just blew over. It's, it's going to be someone, you know, who's going to murder yeah, no you. No so worries. Be, it's going to be, be someone you love who hurts you. It's yeah. fine. <laughs> yeah. but, you know, that's, that's for real. So we, we tell our you know young girls and young men, like, be careful for sexual assault. There's these strangers don't walk by yourself. And, I'm, I tell my students, I'm like, the person who walks you home to avoid that stranger in the bushes is the one who's more likely to sexually assault you. That's just oh, wow. the reality of what it is. It's a mm-hmm. friend. It's a it's a boyfriend, a girlfriend. It's someone who is intimate to you, is who typically abuses, sexually assaults, or kills their people. And so no one's interested in that. They're much more interested in the serial killer or the... Mm-hmm you know, a uh, serial rapist or those types of things, but they're so rare. So that's interesting in and of itself when we watch okay, crime shows. Okay. 
I will tell anyone who's writing a murder book, right? And you want the person to get away with it. There's there's some rules <laughs> to killing people that you've got to follow. <laughs> you cannot kill someone you know and get away with it. It's just you're the prime suspect. The happy face killer I mentioned a few minutes ago, he got caught because he tried to hurt somebody he knew. It was a mistake. He had never done that before. So you don't kill someone you know. Um, you okay. don't kill check. near, yeah, check. <laughs> don't kill near your home okay. because most people don't travel far to commit their crimes. They're usually within like a five, 10 mile radius of their home. Okay. And um, don't kill with anybody else. These like duo couples and things, people aren't, they're not committed that much to each other. So it's not sexy party time. <laughs> yeah. I'm turning you in, right? When I get caught, I'm talking. Right. So right. don't ask me. I, wait a second. I go to jail? No, it was it was Steve. Wait, Steve. It's you won't cut Steve. me a deal? Like they make some dirty deals. I'm talking. <laughs> trust me. If you will not put me in prison for the rest of my life, I'm talking. So those yeah. are some tips for people writing. Make sure you you get it clever enough. And I will tell you on a more serious note, to add in the impact and to make sure the victim's voice is in a story and the family's voice is in a story is something that I always wa watch for. And it's very rarely present. Again, isn't what sells, right? It's not what makes money. Mm -hmm. But when I watch as a criminologist, I'm like, anyone want to talk about the impact this had on the family or, you know, who this girl was, who this man was? Because yes, they might've been in a drug deal gone wrong, right? Or they blow it up to make them seem villainous too. But that's somebody's daughter, that's somebody's son, that's somebody's husband. And so make sure you put a human face and a backstory to the victim um, because they're part of the story, whether we, we want to focus on that or not. You know, we, there are a million podcasts, TV shows, documentaries, articles, books on true crime. As somebody who studies this, what do you see is the appeal? And what was the appeal for you? But what is the appeal? Because I love it too, and I can't explain right. it to my wife. Right. She looks at me like, why do you want to watch something dark and mean? I just want to watch cartoons. Right. But what is the appeal to this true crime wave that's been cresting for a very long time? I think there's a couple different appeals. I think one of the really big fascinations is that when we watch stuff that's so macabre, it doesn't make it as scary. And I don't know if that can make sense to anyone who's listening, but it's like, I want to know the nitty gritty because then somehow I can separate myself from being in that situation. So Almost like a clinical view. Yes. And so if I'm watching and, oh, this mom and daughter were killed in their home. Right. And, oh my God, they forgot to lock the doors that night. Okay. So then I can go, whoa, that's really tragic, but that would never happen to me because I always set my alarm and I lock my doors mm. or, you know, um, this young girl went to this party. She should not have gone to that party. You know, I think we do these things where we can watch by putting a barrier in between ourselves and the person who's actually hurt, particularly when we're watching a real true crime story. Mm -hmm. Right. And you can say, okay, I want to watch from behind a safe glass, right behind the window and watch what happens because it's fascinating. I want to know the sociology behind it, the psychology behind it. I want to watch um, the emotional roller coaster behind it. But I get to do so in this comfortable, safe area. And I think it allows us to kind of explore these these just dark, macabre mm -hmm. parts of every human, you know, <laughs> from this safe place as a as a source of entertainment and not real life. Now, like I said, you can listen to some of these real true crime stories. And they're like, I remember thinking that would never happen to us. Like that yeah. happens to other families and then it happens to us. Yeah. Or you say like, oh, I used to love these things. And then I understood the trauma. I understood the loss. I understood that it's not as attractive anymore because that glass window that you were looking through is open or it's mm -hmm. shattered or something is happening. So I think that's one reason we like it. It's exploring the darkness without having to experience the darkness. So it's like this weird thing. I think people are just fascinated with the criminal mind, right? Especially when you have people like, you know, BTK who appeared to have been such a normal person, you know, or these serial killers who you're like, oh, that's neat. They were the president at their church. They were the boy scout leader. They were a mm. priest, you know, like they're these normal people. And then you learn about their underbelly and the darkness of, of what they can do. It fascinates us because like, how much do we really know people? all kind of get to be the Sherlock Holmes person to investigate. And so I think it's just looking at things that almost seem fictional mm -hmm. and, and because they're on the screen or they're in our earbuds or whatever it is, you can almost listen to it as a fictional story to understand and, and learn about people again, 
from the safety of your own home or from, you know, behind the, the glass. So for you now, do you anticipate the dark series of books or do you feel that you've got those books or scripts or stories in you? Or is that something you don't want to unlock yet? Probably both. I think I have to be cautious about it. Even now I can see becoming a mother changed me a lot. Mm. I remember I used to be like, Oh, this is so fun. And then <laughs> my daughter was born. I was like, Oh my God, my baby, you know, yeah. it became like this very different approach to crime in the way I thought about it. Then I lost buddy and kind of the darkness was like, Oh, I don't want to step away from that, but I'm working on a traditionally published, ironically <laughs> ghost trilogy with my dear colleague, Pat, who's my, my best friend. And he and I are writing this, this ghost story. That's a young adult novel. It's got a little horror in it. It's got mm. a little history in it. So it's definitely got a dark side to it. That lets me kind of play with that. I wrote, I remember I wrote this one horrific scene and he was like, this is a kid's book. You need to tone that down. And I was like, <laughs> I was like, they need to be scared. This is good. And so we had, you to have don't whole, understand yeah, buddy. You, you back up. There. Right. right. <laughs> Back up. I did take out a little bit of his intestines being wound like, you know, gold <laughs> bars on the floor. I did take some of that out. But our beta readers, a couple of them were like, whoa, I don't know if like 12 year old should be reading this. So I was like, okay, I'll dull it down. Jeez. <laughs> so I still get to use. Wussies. God, right. Watch ID discovery and get back. Exactly. To Anywho. So I did, I do still use some of that. I definitely have thought about writing one, my own, my own experience with grief, loss, and trauma mm. in kind of a very approachable way for other people and writing a mystery murder, yeah. you know, husband on a shelf type of, <laughs> type of book. <laughs> but he had a pulmonary embolism, okay? It was not, yeah. it was not me. <laughs> but I definitely thought about writing something like that because I can understand so much of the grief and trauma that could happen in kind of a, a book like that. But also I study murder and sexual assault. So I'm like, I could see writing something from that venture right now. I think I'm more focused on the young adult kids, okay. which frees me up from the darkness uh, yeah. a little bit, but <laughs> that really is the, you are the poster child for art as catharsis, which is, yes. you know, it's so rare that any, I mean, we hear about it, you know, if you go to art school, you're like, this will be good for you. You'll work it out. And you're like, ah, whatever, whatever, man, just got to get through class. Yes. And here it's like, but that, I mean, kudos to you for being able to find it. Thank that's you. a miracle in and of itself that you've been able to Thank do that. You. That is, that's truly fabulous. I vividly remember the first day I stepped on campus to go read this story to Pat. And as I'm walking, everything was like so dark and so gray. And as I was reading it to him, I started acting out the scenes and I started laughing. And literally I told him, I said, you're going to think I'm tripping on LSD or something, but like around you, I see color right now. And then I was walking back to my car and the flowers were like deafening. They were so bright and, and so bold. And I said, oh my God, it's literally weaving magic back into my life. And so it really is. It's crazy. That was not, that's never what I thought was going to happen with this adventure. So there you go. I hope Ashley has inspired you to create something beautiful and therapeutic. If not for the masses, at least for yourself. One request I have before we click off is please hit subscribe on whatever device you're listening to so that you never miss an episode of Creative Mind. Thanks for listening.